fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Hello, Utah Street. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the warehouse at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Brendan Mortensen here doing his very best Paul Mancano impression as Paul joins us from Ireland, was kind of via Zoom, and now it's over the phone. Paul, how does it feel to be taking time away from your Ireland vacation to to get back to the fun stuff of discussing the Orioles 40-man roster? I mean, first off, I just got to say that that was uh, need some work. You're from inside the warehouse at Oriole Park. I thought I nailed it. More vigor, more vim. You know, you got it's got to have some, uh, you know, a little bit of life to that. But it it was okay. It was a good first attempt. Uh, You know, this is uh, it it is also slightly upsetting considering, uh, you know, technical difficulties. I'm just uh, a talking graphic right now instead of uh, on Zoom because uh, I'm walking around here in uh, first in Dublin this morning and now in Cork, Ireland with a, a, a an Orioles uh, uh, Carter zip. And so I look like, a, a, you know, a, a somebody who's from the States, somebody who's a, a bloody Yankee, you know, I, I, totally out of place. Uh, I want to recreate that moment from the Orioles fan on Twitter. I don't know who it was, who was wearing an Orioles thing, I think in London. And, uh, or he saw somebody wearing an Orioles thing in London and he said, oh, you're an Orioles fan. And the guy just said, oh, I just, I just like the duck. That's what I'm hoping to get today. I'm hoping somebody recognizes this. Hasn't happened yet and says, go Orioles. And I say, I just like the duck. Paul, we had all that time where we were working out technical difficulties for you to work on that accent. And it's still not any better, which is a little bit disappointing. Oh, it's beautiful. I'm going to be going in and out. I think at some point down the line, we got to get a, uh, a segment that is specifically devoted to my Irish accent because it has yeah. gotten significantly better since I came out, came over here. And, uh, I, I cannot get enough of it. The, the, the Irish accent is just, everything sounds better. You know, they're, they're talking about applying to Guinness. They're talking about going down to the pub and it's all just everything. Life is just better over here. I, I don't think I'm coming home. I don't think I'm coming back to the States. Well, they do say that Ireland is the best place to cover the Baltimore Orioles and, and to keep in touch with Baltimore. And we have some oh housekeeping things to get through first. No, go ahead, Paul. Yeah. No, no, goodness. I, I was going to say, you know, uh, uh, around the streets here, you know, everybody's talking about their uh, – all I hear in the pubs is the conversation, the chatter is, is you know, who are the Orioles going to protect from the Rule 5 draft? Yeah. Are they going to keep Patrick Dorian? Are they going to go with Felix Bautista? And I, I, you know, I try to provide a little bit of insight here and there, but – they are tuned in over here. This is this is a country that has deep, deep Orioles roots, and uh, uh, frankly, it's it's great to see that the uh, the fan base has, has reached cross seas and, and gotten all the way over here. Yeah, Ireland has been a buzz for weeks about what the Orioles might do with protecting certain players for their forty man oh. roster. I mean, it, yeah. it is unbelievable how much the entire country has been talking about it. But first, the Orioles uh, hired co-hitting coaches this week, Ryan Fuller and uh, Matt Borgschulte. Borgschulte. Goodness, I don't know how to pronounce Great that last name. I think I yeah. think I nailed it. You made Thank an you very much. Yeah, I yeah, certainly made the effort. Yeah. Uh, Ryan Fuller, just 31 years old, comes from AA Bowie, so that's a hire from within the organization. And then Borg Schulte comes over from AAA. He was with the Minnesota Twins organization. A different approach here for the Orioles, signing co-hitting coaches at the major league level. Paul, what did you think of this move? 
I think I'm going to drop the accent uh, now because I think I think that's a good idea for everyone. In I don't know how I'm going to. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to say Borg Schulte in uh, in an Irish accent. I was I was thinking about it, but I was definitely going to botch it. Uh, yeah, I, I was fascinated to see this move, and I know that it has been a big topic on Twitter, on uh, other media platforms, because people are debating the first the idea of a co-hitting coach. I feel like it's something that we're seeing a little bit more and more around baseball as teams start to realize just how important that position is, is in addition to hitting coach or in addition to pitching coach rather, which is why we've seen the blossoming of the director of pitching position, which more and more teams, including the Orioles have started to adopt. Uh, and also the, the guys that they picked for these positions in Burke Schulte and Fuller, two 31 year olds, neither of which has any, experience playing at the MLB level and neither of which has any experience coaching at the MLB level. So outside the box hires, I guess you could say these are hires that I think 10, 15 years ago would be viewed upon with utter shock. I think now it is significantly less shocking uh, because this seems to be in line, not only with what baseball has trended towards, but also this seems to be a move that Mike Elias has been itching to make in terms of, going with somebody who is 100% in, not just one guy, but two guys who are 100% in and bought into the analytics side here. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like the kind of move that's a too many cooks in the kitchen kind of thing. It seems like as many good hitting coaches as you can get, you should have on your team. Ryan Fuller was seen as kind of a rising star within the organization. Like you said, just 31 years old with double-A Bowie. Did some great work with those hitters there. We know the work that Buck Britton has done at that level as well. And he's done a lot of that plate zone discipline with Buck Britton. He's been preaching it for the entire year. So hopefully Fuller will bring some of that knowledge to the major league level. And then Borg Schulte, again, has worked with a lot of top prospects in that Twins organization. Guys like Alex Kirilov, Royce Lewis, who he's worked with at AAA. So I'm excited to see what kind of ideas he's bringing from the Twins organization. And the inexperience, like you mentioned, Yes, it can have an impact, but I think a lot of people probably say, said the same thing about Gabe Kapler in San Francisco, and that seemed to work out pretty well with the best record in the National League. Yeah, I mean, not obviously Gabe Kapler as a, as a manager had had managerial experience and playing experience, more just how he, the comparisons that uh, I've seen are more about how he built his staff uh, in San Francisco and he drew a lot of the same criticism because it was inexperienced guys. Um, and I think the hardest part of this for us, one of the hardest things for media members and the outside to do outsiders to do here is try to predict how coaches will be or how managers will be at their jobs because you don't have access to the meetings that the owners and the GMs are sitting in as they interview candidates. And it's nearly impossible to determine when you're looking at where guys have been along their journey, the different stops that they've made. It's impossible to look at a team and say, all right, 10% of this was coaching, 15% of this was player development, and 80%, you know, that doesn't add up to 100, was the players themselves. It's impossible to determine how much success a team has is due to coaching. So I think the hardest thing for you and I, to do would be to sit here and judge exactly how these guys are going to be and to look at, and I think it's important to look at the success that these guys have had with their teams, but 
that doesn't necessarily translate. And especially when you're talking about going from double A or triple A to the big leagues. And especially when you're talking about guys who weren't managers at those levels, because there are so many, so many factors that are involved there. And that's what's lead, what leads to the statistics. But what we can do while we can't entirely predict how these guys will be as coaches, I think we can look at the process, the process that got the Orioles to there and the process that Brandon Hyde and Mike Elias and the coaching and the front office did in picking these guys. And did they follow the correct steps to get these guys? And I think you mentioned the Giants, and I think that you look at the, the success they had at their other stops in minor league coaching, and I think that you can say they, they are clearly the Orioles are following other successful organizations around baseball, and they are finding two guys who were good at their previous positions. So I think those are two good steps in, in, in this process of finding coaches to go along with Brandon Hyde and this coaching staff. Right. It's really hard to predict what minor league players are going to do based on their numbers in the major leagues, let alone minor league coaches and what they yeah. might do in the major leagues based on their numbers there. But I think getting younger guys makes sense as well, especially when you are looking at this Orioles organization as a whole, it's going to be built on the backs of prospects. And with a guy like Ryan Fuller, you already have somebody who has had experience coaching a lot of these younger guys who are going to be the foundation of the team. So it makes sense as you are moving a manager like Buck Britton up through the ranks that you would move a hitting coach like Ryan Fuller up as well. If he's had success at double A with these prospects, there's no saying that he can't have that same success at the majors with these prospects that he already has experience coaching. And Bork Schulte is probably in a similar light there where he has had success at the minor leagues with a lot of top prospects. And there's no reason to believe that that success wouldn't translate to the majors when he's coaching a lot of these same young guys. Right. And I think that the other thing to note when it comes to Fuller is that not only was he the hitting coach in double A Bowie, but he served as the entire organization's hitting coordinator, which means he was working with players at all levels of the Orioles system. And there were just about every good hitting prospect that the Orioles had this year, with the exception of the 2021 draft class. So Colton Cowser um, and Kobe Mayo and those guys, they, those guys didn't come through double a, but just about everybody else did. Adley Rutschman started the season at double a, and he got off to a great start. Uh, you saw Jordan Westberg, you saw Gunnar Henderson, and then you saw guys who were not top prospects, have immense success. Steve Molesky specifically mentioning, mentioning Patrick Dorian as somebody who got to double A this year and made a massive jump statistically in part because of some of the things that they were doing at the double A level and interesting, fascinating things that were happening behind the scenes, such as, you know, they were going, they were learning how to pitches while they were in that cage before games, they were getting strike zone decisions after games and emphasizing those things when Buck Britton was meeting with his players and talking with his players saying, this is a good swing decision, or this is a good take here, as opposed to judge just, did you get a hit or did you not looking at base percentage? So innovative things that Fuller was able to accomplish and able to implement at the double a level, in addition to getting hands-on work with all these guys. So you already have uh, a kind of built in, you know, um, relationship with a lot of the players that are going to be making their debuts soon. And then Borg Schulte is, is a little bit more of a wild card because he's coming from a different organization 
And honestly, the St. Paul Saints, uh, which is one of the stranger names, I guess a little repetitive, uh, in minor league baseball, but, you know, they were in the middle of the pack offensively in a lot of categories. They were just 17th of 30 teams in their league or division in OPS, 15th of 30 in walks. They were fourth in homers, so they had more power, seventh in batting average, but they also have the fifth most strikeouts. So it's, it's difficult to determine exactly the kind of impact that he had with that team. And save for being in St. Paul and talking to players and talking to people who are in that organization, there's not much we can do to learn exactly what he brings to this coaching staff. So I'm interested to hear from him at some point. I'm assuming they're going to make him available to the media as they will Fuller so that we can hear from him as to what kind of stratagems he intends to uh, to implement. Yeah, Fuller and Borg Schulte will have the opportunity to work with a lot of Orioles youngsters that are coming up through the organization, and we'll find out more about just who they might be working with in just a few days, as the deadline for protecting players ahead of the Rule 5 draft is November 19th. That's on Friday. The Orioles roster currently sits at 32, and we know Mike Elias will probably want to leave room for the Rule 5 draft. He has made two selections in the last few Rule 5 drafts, so he will probably want to keep that option available as well. And a little quick math tells us that the Orioles will probably protect no more than six guys if they want to keep that roster at 38, so they're able to make selections. As you see the graphic there, if you're not following along on YouTube and Facebook, you should be. There's the new Brian Baker that got that number up from 31 to 32. So this is where the Orioles currently sit. And Paul, with a lot of young prospects that are eligible for the Rule 5 draft, narrowing the number down to six has proved to be a pretty difficult task. It has. And I know this is your first, uh, one of your first times hosting the podcast in quite a while. And I'm just going to throw you all the way off as a host and go back because I do want to talk more about these hitting coaches. Can we talk more about these hitting coaches, Brendan? Well, sure. Before we get into the Rule 5 draft? Well, sure. Let's do it. I have more to say. I have more takes. There were more takes that were out there online uh, last night. Specifically, uh, Dan Connolly of The Athletic. I'll go ahead and call out dear friend of the pod, uh, Dan Connolly, because he was sparking a lot of the conversation and debate about the experience level of these guys. And I just, you brought up Gabe Kapler specifically. Um, And I just want to put, you know, put more context to that because, Gabe Kapler, when he was hired as the Giants manager a couple of years ago, he hired Justin Vile as their hitting coach, who had never coached higher than Class A. He was never in the big leagues as a player. He was a minor leaguer, actually in the Orioles system, played for Delmarva and Bowie and those minor league affiliates, but had no coaching experience above Class A. And wouldn't you know it, Everybody in the Giants organization this past year had a career year, just about, in terms of their lineup and their hitting. So that is to say that just because somebody has experience doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be good at the job. And just because somebody doesn't have experience doesn't mean that they're going to be bad. Now, I know that that's not the the entire argument here because more of to, to add more nuance to it is, you know, Connolly and others I know specifically talked about how um, marrying the analytic side with the old school baseball side, I think, is an important thing to do. And that's something that can't be ignored. And that's something that Michael Elias has talked about, making sure that you are paying homage to old school baseball while also bringing in some new schools of thought. 
And that's something that the Giants did as well. It wasn't just inexperienced coaches like my, like Justin Belay. And I think the interesting thing is going to be for the Orioles to find the balance between old school baseball and new school, because it seems like with all of these hires, as they continue to revamp the baseball ops department, they are clearly putting an emphasis on analytics, new school baseball, that type of thing. Um, whereas they are, and they're often uh, moving on from people who are more associated with the old school type baseball and, and people who are not exactly advanced. So I think it's interesting that they hired two guys with very similar backgrounds. Neither one of these guys and Fuller and Borg Schulte was a major league player. Neither of these guys was a major league coach of any uh, step in their career. They're both 31 years old. I think that's interesting. I think oftentimes you can see guys clash, butt heads and clash when they have two very different uh, perspectives on the game. You know, if they went with an old school guy and they went with a new school guy and they meshed them and said, you guys are the co-hitting coaches, you guys are on equal playing field. I think that that's going to, that can lead to some trouble. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how these two guys with very similar perspectives, one outside the organization, one inside the organization end up meshing together. And I think that's an interesting comparison too with Gabe Kapler and the Giants staff because that Giants roster was very differently constructed than the Orioles roster is going to be. You had a combination of young coaches and then the guys who kind of had resurgent seasons for the Giants were Buster Posey and Brandon Crawford who turned back the clock to 2015 and hit like they hadn't in a bunch of years. What do you think the difference is going to be between an inexperienced coach with the Giants who is coaching veterans and is somehow getting them back to a, a point where they once were in their career versus the Orioles where you have a bunch of prospects that are just coming up and they don't have that same veteran experience. You're trying to teach them rather than get them back to somewhere where they previous, previously were. Well, how often do we hear the important, it's such an important step for players to buy in. You know, I think that that's right. probably the, one of the biggest things when we talk about Gabe Kapler and what he was able to accomplish in San Francisco, he's such a new school guy. He's such a uh, analytics-driven guy, and that's an organization now with Farhan Zaidi that is, is oriented that way. And for him to get the veterans that they had in-house, all these guys who are 30 years and older, to buy in and understand their role, I think was a huge, impressive step for Gabe Kapler. I think it's going to be a vastly different job for Borg, Schulte, and Fuller, right? Because they already have guys that have already bought in. They have been indoctrinated with this stuff from the moment they were drafted in the organization or acquired by the Orioles. So they are bought in. And if they're not, then they're behind at this point. So I think having that ground grounding with these Orioles prospects and with these guys that are going to make their debuts who already have seen this kind of data and already know what what Fuller in particular is talking about, I think that that is a good place to start. Do you agree? Yeah, Fuller is just going to be carrying philosophies with him from the minor leagues that have proven to have worked, and he's just bringing those to the majors. And clearly the Orioles have placed so much emphasis on the minor league system and that development that they think the same thing about their coaching. I mean, we've heard so much about Buck Britton. We are obviously starting to hear more about guys like Ryan Fuller. And if the Orioles are placing so much emphasis on the minor leagues and the philosophies that they're teaching there and developing those analytics early, 
it makes sense as to why you would want to carry that forward to the major league level, because if it's working at a lower level, then there's no reason to believe it's not going to work at the majors. Right. Right. And I think it's also an interesting question of how these two are going to work together because we've seen it tried at other levels. Um, We've seen it tried in other major league organizations and it's impossible to know how things are working exactly behind the scenes, but we will kind of have an interesting idea. When anytime you have two people who have the exact same job, it's interesting the kind of dynamic that they're going to have. I mean, I just cut you off, uh, you know, in recording this podcast. Right. We're both co-hosts, so I can only imagine the kind of friction that happens behind the scenes. Um, you know, when you're talking about guys that are both anytime in sports, you know, ego is going to be a factor in this. Um, and I'm sure that the Orioles considered that when hiring these two guys is how well are they working with other coaches? How well, how willing are they to take a a step back and how willing are they to listen to other advice in making their decisions? Um, and I think that it's going to be interesting to see how these two work together. If they, uh, specifically mentioned this morning on massinsports.com, how the plan right now is not to like necessarily divide the locker room and say, you know, Anthony Santander, Trey Mancini, Ryan Mountcastle, you go with Fuller, uh, you know, uh, Adley Rutschman when he comes up, and uh, Ramon Arias, you guys go with Brooke Schulte. I don't know why those two would be paired together. Uh, you know, w- dividing up players to go to a specific coach, but as the season goes along, maybe a player gravitates more to one guy as opposed to the other. Maybe one guy just has more, his schedule works better with another player as opposed to another one. So, it's a big job. I think that's why they broke it up, but I am curious to see how they work together and how willing they are to um, incorporate each other's ideas and each other's plans into what they do. Right. I think it's fair to assume that Fuller and Bork Schulte are not going to do the same things for you. And it's also important to keep in mind that like, this isn't like the Ravens hiring two offensive coordinators who are both competing to call plays. It's just two hitting coaches that are working towards the same goal. And they're not going to be making decisions more than likely on a game to game basis. They have the same goal, which is trying to work with these hitters. And again, like I said, they are probably going to bring different things to the table that might work differently for different hitters and might benefit more than others yeah I, I think that's a great comparison because like the the managerial position in baseball not since i think it was called the council of coaches back in like the 60s when the dodgers tried a bunch of different coaches a bunch of different managers as they tried to like reinvent the idea of managing baseball that hasn't been tried since then and teams have always gone with one manager pretty much since then you know they, whether it was a player manager or a manager itself so the Orioles aren't trying to reinvent the wheel here by going with a couple coaches, but the job of manager is so big that I think having a bigger coaching staff can be a benefit to a manager who has so much on his plate. So I think that, you know, there, the, when you talk about like the Ravens comparison there, it's like you have to have for an offensive coordinator in the NFL, for a manager in baseball, you have to have a decision maker. Who's going to come in out of the bullpen? Who's going to warm up? Who's going to be inserted here as a pinch hitter? That's a decision-making job, and it makes it easier on a manager when you have multiple voices in the room who are able to provide different insight over the course of a 162-game season. But there won't be necessarily butting heads in terms of, you know, th- those guys are not going to be involved in necessarily in the decision-making process. It's more about 
the stuff that goes on between games. It's, it's about developing these guys and coaching these guys. And um, one guy will be in the dugout. They can only have one guy in the dugout and one guy in the batting cage during games. I think Rock speculated that Fuller will be the guy in the dugout. Um, and Borg Schulte will be the, the guy in the, the batting cage. So already you have kind of like a little bit of a, you know, maybe they mix that up. Maybe they do every other night. I don't know. Um, I'm curious to see how that works, but I agree with you. I think that's a good comparison between the decision maker at the top where you don't want too many voices and the coaching staff who is developing these players when you want as many voices as you can get to have as many different opinions as you can can get. Controlled chaos. Yeah, and I think the bottom line is the Orioles are not going to be hurt by having multiple good and talented coaches at the major league level. I don't think that's ever a bad thing. And hopefully over the coming weeks, we'll hear more from Fuller and Borg Schulte about their different philosophies and what they might be bringing to the table for the Orioles. As I try that this transition again to talking about the Orioles 40 man roster. Paul, are we good to I go now? Lay off. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm, I'm going to lay out here. Please, All right. Please do it. Yeah, I don't think you need to do the full thing again. It was already, I botched what was a perfect transition for you. Well, thank you very much. You laid it all out. Yeah. Well, to reiterate once again, deadline is this Friday to protect players from the Rule 5 draft. The Orioles roster currently sits at 32, and since Mike Elias will probably want to have two spots open for the Rule 5 draft, Paul and I are speculating that the Orioles will probably protect six players who those six are is is pretty up in the air right now. But the first guy that is not up in the air and is pretty much an absolute lock to be protected is D.L. Hall. He is the number three ranked prospect in the Orioles system, the top left-handed pitching prospect, 72nd ranked prospect in all of baseball, the sixth ranked left-handed pitching prospect in all of baseball. There's no way the Orioles are not going to protect him. He would be picked immediately in the Rule 5 draft, even coming off of an injury. Regardless of whether or not he makes his debut, he is well worthy of a 40-man roster spot. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, there are a couple no-brainers on this list, but yeah, somebody who absolutely doesn't even require a second thought. Yeah, don't need to spend too much time on D.L. Hall. Another name we don't need to spend too much time on is Kyle Bradish. He is going to get protected. He is the Orioles' eighth-ranked prospect in the system, the second-ranked right-handed pitching prospect behind Grayson Rodriguez. He has really shot up the prospect list this year after a strong 2021 campaign in the minors, and he's probably close to his major league debut as well. He's 25 years old, and he might work his way into the Orioles' rotation at some point this year. So it's not like this is a prospect that you are throwing on the 40-man roster because you have to. This is a prospect who you're going to put on the 40-man roster, and he might actually be a contributor in the 2022 season. Yeah, 25 years old at that point, you know, that's the, this is what the Rule 5 draft is kind of meant for, is, is pushing guys upwards who are of an age where they should probably be making their debut soon, and they should be added to the 40-man, because if, if a team doesn't have room for them on their 40-man, they're going to have another job elsewhere in baseball pretty easily. So I think Bradish was that category. And I think even Kevin Smith, who's the 24-year-old lefty, Orioles' number 14 prospect, I think he fits that category as well. I know he wasn't great in AAA Norfolk. And for the year, he had a 4.59 ERA. If you recall, he was the guy who was traded in the Miguel Castro deal, uh, came over from the Mets organization. He's younger. He's 24 years old, as mentioned. But I think Smith fits into that same category where, you just got to protect him. It's well, well worth it. 
Yeah, if Kyle Bradish is a 99% chance to get kept, Kevin Smith is probably a 98% chance to get kept. He's the Orioles' 14th-ranked prospect, like you said, and he's 24 years old, so another guy that might make his Major League debut this year if the Orioles add him to the 40-man roster, which we are assuming they will. So that is half of the six spots already locked up. And then another guy who is more or less a lock, I think, is Taron Vavra. He's the Orioles' 13th-ranked prospect. He is a little bit older, and he's still at AA. He's dealt with some injuries this year, but still a really intriguing young prospect. He can play both middle infield and the outfield would be shocking if the Orioles did not protect him. Yeah, there's, there's just no reason not to. You know, you, there are so many guys, uh, you know, you would rather have him over so many guys, even on the current roster, who they are going to make it through this this period because he still offers a lot of upside, and I know he, he had those injury issues, but um, just too too much of a risk to, to leave him out there because another guy who would get scooped up and who would get playing time and would make it through the year almost definitely with another team. Yeah, and Taron Vavra's bat might not be major league ready right now, but I think he falls under the category of player where you could put him on your 40-man roster, and if you needed to play him at some point at the major league level, he wouldn't be great, but he is still good enough defensively, and he has plus speed to the point where he wouldn't be a complete detriment in somebody's lineup. I think he would kind of be similar to a Ryan McKenna type where McKenna's bat wasn't quite ready for the majors, but the fielding was good. The speed was good. So even if he is kind of forced into a role that he's not ready for, he would still be okay because he has that baseline tool set. Right. And, and certain teams similar to what the, you know, the Orioles have this philosophy as well. And they're, you're not always looking for, a contributor from the World 5 draft who can contribute right away. There are so many teams who are on the lower end of the spectrum in the rebuilding process who are looking at the Rule 5 draft as a chance to get a look at a free prospect. It's what the Orioles did with Richie Martin, where they, they took him number one overall in the Rule 5 draft uh, in Michael Elias' first year, knowing full well he was almost definitely not going to be ready to play a full major league season and contribute right away. But they didn't care because they knew that they had a chance to get a guy who could be good in a few years. And so long as he was able to mentally get through the season, physically get through the grind of a major league season, after the season ends, he stays in your organization and you just have another young guy that you can use down the line. So that's, it, it, you know, it, while playoff teams, those 40-man rosters I get are going to be, uh, those 40-man roster spots are going to be difficult for a player who is not ready for the big leagues to make it through a season um, on that 40-man roster. Other teams who are not necessarily trying to make a, the playoffs in 2022, they're perfectly fine with taking a full 162-game sample size of a player they know is not ready to contribute with the thinking that he could contribute in 2023 and beyond. Yeah, Vavra has just too high of a ceiling not to get picked in the Rule 5 draft. But after him, that's four spots pretty much locked down that we're predicting. After Vavra, things get a lot more interesting with the final two or three guys that the Orioles could protect. The next one on my list, Paul, that I think is going to get protected is Robert Newstrom. He's not the highest rated prospect, but he had a fantastic 2021 season, 790 OPS, 16 homers, 50 extra base hits. And I think he, at 25 years old, is a player that you could realistically see maybe working into that right field rotation for the Orioles this season. So I think Robert Newstrom showed you enough in the minor leagues this year 
where he is worthy of protecting. And I think somebody else would take him happily in the Rule 5 draft, a power-hitting corner outfielder who is ready for the major league level seems like somebody who would get picked pretty much right away. Yeah. And I know he was not a Michael Elias draftee. He was a 2018 fourth round pick. So when Dan Duquette's last draft with the Orioles, but I think after those top four guys, after uh, DL Hall, Taron Vavra, Kevin Smith, um, and uh, Kyle Bradish, I think that Newstrom has the best case to be made because like you said, I think he is, I think he's major league ready pretty much 25 years old. I think a team, it, it could be willing to throw him out there. I know a lot of teams need outfield help and this is a chance to get a 25, 26 year old uh, outfielder who provides a little pop. You can stick him. You can't stick him in center, but you can stick him in a corner outfield spot. So I think the Orioles it, probably, probably protect Newstrom at this point. I think, I think it's about a 70 30 because you mentioned 32 guys right now on the 40-man roster, eight open spots, and they probably want to take two guys in the Rule 5 draft. That leaves only six spots, and after the top four, I think Newstrom is probably the fifth guy that you have there. Yeah, I would agree, and Newstrom provides a good amount of speed as well. 12 stolen bases between Bowie and Norfolk, and when we talk about guys like Kyle Stowers, Natalie Rutschman, we've mentioned service time a lot, not wanting to bring them up too early and waste a year of service time. With a 25-year-old Robert Newstrom, you're probably not as worried about that. I think there's a decent chance Newstrom could break string, spring training with the Major League roster. Yeah, I, and I, the only thing that is working against him is I don't think he has the same feeling that some of the guys we're about to talk about uh, have. Because I think that he, he, you know, he's not a top 30 prospect in the Orioles system, and how much do other teams think he can contribute, not just in, in, immediately, but down the line. Whereas I think Rule 5 draft picks, a lot of teams just take big swings. They take guys like the Orioles did. They take Tyler Wells, who was coming off Tommy John and had not pitched above a certain level. They took Max Roller, who had not pitched in a while and above a certain level. Jack Pop, who's coming off uh, Tommy John surgery. So they take big swings. He would be a safer bet. You know, if you're taking a Robert Newstrom, you're taking a guy that is a, a safer bet to contribute right away, but probably doesn't have the same high ceiling. So that works against him, but I think he's so safe that I think the Orioles probably have to protect him. Yeah, it seems like a high floor prospect that the Orioles will probably want to hold on to. And I think if you're a team at the back half of the Rule 5 draft, maybe a competing team, there's nothing wrong with taking a swing on a high floor prospect that you think can come to the majors and compete right away. So if Newstrom has a 70-30 chance of being protected, like we're guesstimating there, that leaves one spot by our estimation that the Orioles right. will be able to protect. And there are a lot of names in this conversation for that sixth guy that the Orioles could keep. I think you and I are in agreement and are against what a lot of Orioles Twitter has been saying about who this sixth guy is going to be. I think it's going to be Adam Hall. He is the Orioles 15th ranked prospect in the Orioles top 30, which is higher than guys like Jemai Jones, Kobe Mayo and Hudson Haskin. Yes, those rankings might change, but as of right now, that is where a lot of people projected his ceiling to be. He was very good in 2019, but that was at single A. He has struggled with injuries throughout 2021, did not put up good offensive numbers this year. But Paul, I just can't justify the Orioles not protecting their 15th ranked prospect in the number one farm system in all of baseball. I know he's not quite major league ready yet, and that's not typically the type of guy that you would protect and put on your 40-man roster, 
but the ceiling is so high without him Hall that I don't know how you don't protect him if you're Baltimore. So Nathan saying on Facebook, uh, he thinks that we should protect the Orioles should protect Adam Hall. Uh, and I think that you, me, Nathan on Facebook are probably in the minority of Orioles fans because uh, I've seen a lot of talk about the Orioles don't need to protect him. He's not going to contribute right away. He's 22 years old. Didn't get above high A. What team is going to take a swing on this guy, uh, knowing how far away he is from contributing at the major league level? And what I will say is do you look at previous guys who were taken in the Wolf Five draft in the last few years. I talk about big swings that teams take. Gray Fenter was taken in the Wolf Five draft from the Orioles system by the Cubs in that last year's Rule 5 draft, his highest level played was single-A Delmarva, not even high-A. Anthony Santander, when he was taken as a prospect and was taken by the Orioles in the Rule 5 draft from the Cleveland system, his last minor league season before the Rule 5 draft was high-A. Max Roller, last year, taken by the Orioles before Tyler Wells, his highest level of competition was high-A. Now, a couple of those guys, Gray Fenter, Max Roller, missed a year in 2020 with the shutdown, so maybe they would have been at double-A. But my point is... Well, so did Adam Hall. So did did Adam Hall. But, you know, he would have... We know how high he reached in terms of, like, where he is right now. Whereas a year ago, Max Roller, we don't know exactly where he would have been if 2020 had been a regular season. And my point is, teams, good teams... You know, I don't think the Yankees are going to take an Adam Hall. I don't think the Rays, oh, who knows what the Rays, they're a crazy team, are going to take Adam Hall. You know, I don't think the Giants are going to take an Adam Hall. But what I do think is that there are teams, if he is left unprotected, that are going to see that he is a top 20 prospect in the best minor league system in baseball and say, this guy, if he can take his lumps in 2022, he can be a speedy, versatile outfielder for years to come. And, you know, it's it's not necessarily that he's going to contribute right away because I don't think he can be. I, I don't think he can. And I think that teams will definitely be hesitant to take him. I'm not going to say he's going to be the first overall pick in the Rule 5 draft if he gets left unprotected. But if this rebuild is about prospects, and that's what it, the whole thing is about, it's about developing your system and building your system from within, to me... If you have a top 15 prospect, top 20 prospect in your system, there's just no reason to risk losing. Yeah, Nathan on Facebook again saying the Pirates, Diamondbacks, Cubs would swoop in and take him in an instant. And I agree. I think Adam Hall, like I said, you look at somebody like Ryan McKenna. His his bat is not where Ryan McKenna's is. McKenna was great at AAA. But if Adam Hall can come to the majors, even if he hits 100, Adam Hall is still, at the very least, going to give you a baseline of high-end speed and good defense. And you can take your lumps offensively if the other tools are there. And you really don't have to look any farther than Richie Martin. This is exactly what the Orioles did a few years ago with Richie Martin. He was not ready to contribute at the major league level. That much was clear, but Richie Martin still gave you pretty good defense at shortstop, and he was a speedy guy who was a threat on the base paths. Richie Martin did not pan out in the way that the Orioles had hoped. However, Adam Hall 
probably has a higher ceiling than Richie Martin ever did. And I think a team is going to be all over, like you said, taking the number 15 prospect in the top farm system in all of baseball. And Adam Hall has not been so horrendous offensively that you can justify saying, okay, his bat is just never going to develop because there's still a pretty good chance that it will. He wouldn't have been the 15th ranked prospect in this system if the bat was below average. Everything else is very good, but the bat is still good and he still has a ton of potential. And and I get the, the other side of the coin, which is it's going to be difficult for the Orioles to carry somebody who's 22 years old and not ready for the entire season. Like that's tough to have on your 40 man roster, a spot that you know is not going to get used basically in 2021, because I think if the Orioles add him, I don't think they, they call him up. You know, I don't think he makes his debut in 2022. I think he probably starts the season at double A, and if all things go well, he finishes the season at triple A. So that is a tough pill to swallow, and I understand that. And the other thing I will say is I think Adam Hall probably is being a little bit overrated by MLB Pipeline because of his tools. I think that uh, if he has another season statistically like the one he just had with a 672 OPS, only three homers, in 81 games, he struggled with injuries. I think he falls further down the prospect list. So maybe he, you could make the case he's a little overrated at 15. And maybe even if you think, the thing is, even if you think there's a 15% chance that he gets taken by another team, even if you don't think it's likely another team takes him, it's just not worth the risk. You know, like it's, it's even if the risk is low, the, the downside of losing him is too great to justify that. So I think it's going to be interesting because I, you and I both have him, I think it's the sixth guy yeah. on this list. And if the Orioles take, uh, you know, two guys in the rule five draft, or they want to take two guys in the rule five draft, that would leave him as the last guy protected. And that would have him boxing out some other guys that I think are deserving of getting protected. But the Orioles, there are still a couple of days here. The Orioles still can make some moves. They can still DFA some guys. They can still place guys on waivers. They can still drop guys. Um, and so it's not set in stone and they can also decide that they only want to take one guy in the world five draft. So I think that the Orioles will consider their options. I think he probably gets added. I, I don't think it's a hundred percent chance. I think it's like 60, 40, 70, 30, but I think he probably will get added. And if he is the sixth guy to be added, then I think the Orioles might clear some roster room before Friday's deadline in order to add other guys after Adam Hall. Yeah, and they have room to do that. There are still guys on this 40-man roster that you and I are both surprised are still on right. this 40-man roster. Guys like DJ Stewart, Brooks Krisky, Joey Crable. I can't justify keeping any of those three over the number 15 prospect in your system. And I would probably say there's a 70-30 chance that the Orioles keep Adam Hall. I think there is a... 80-90% chance that if the Orioles don't keep Adam Hall, he gets picked by somebody because he the, the ceiling is just too high with Adam Hall for another team not to take a chance on him. Now, the number is yeah, not... I think, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Paul. Sorry, I was just going to say one, one quick thing because, remember, the Rule 5 draft has two major league rounds before they get to the minor league phase of the Rule 5 draft. So, you know, he, he probably wouldn't be, maybe wouldn't be a... a first round pick in the rule five draft. But if another team, if he's still on the board and it comes around to round two and he's still there, I think teams will get very tempted and it's just not worth the risk of, even if he doesn't make it through the whole season with the team and they end up sending him back that, you know, it's just, 
you're just going to be biting your nails, hoping that he comes back like the Orioles fans did with Zach Pop all year. So they're just biting their nails and saying, I hope he has some bad outings, like nothing against the guy, but I hope he struggles so that the Marlins want to send him back. And I, I, I don't want to be in that position with Adam Hall, and I don't know if the Orioles do either. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, that number is not set in stone at six. That is just the number of prospects that we are assuming the Orioles will keep if they don't make any other moves, because Michael Elias more than likely will want to keep two spots open for the Rule 5 draft. And the six guys that Paul and I are both projecting the Orioles will keep, D.L. Hall, Kyle Bradish, Kevin Smith, Taryn Vavra, Robert Newstrom, and Adam Hall, which still leaves a lot of good prospects unprotected. One of those prospects, Paul, that has been getting a lot of traction that I think you and I are both a little bit surprised by is Patrick Dorian. He plays a position of need for the Orioles at the major league level. At this point, Dorian is at the hot corner at third base. He's 25 years old, and he has put up very good minor league numbers. This year, he hit 242 with an 815 OPS between Bowie and Norfolk. He only got 16 at-bats at AAA Norfolk, and he had two hits, so we haven't seen him at the AAA level yet, which means he might not be ready to take a major league jump. But Paul, what do you think the odds are that the Orioles keep somebody like Patrick Dorian with the, with the idea that maybe he can even compete for the third base job at the major league level at some point soon when somebody like Gunnar Henderson and Jordan Westberg are not ready to take that role yet? I think the Orioles would be okay with the risk of losing him because I don't think the risk is that high. You know, I, he is three years older than when we talk about Adam Hall, he's three years older than Adam Hall and he's only one level above Adam Hall and he put up better numbers, but they weren't unbelievable outstanding numbers. And especially in the second half is when he struggled a little bit. He's such an interesting story. He was drafted in the 12th round by Atlanta in 2014 signed and then decided to go back to school or signed to go, decide to go to school. So decided to go to, to college. So the Braves essentially released him, and then four years later, he was signed by Pittsburgh. So weird story for him to get to major league or to, to minor league baseball. I just I, I, he doesn't have the ceiling of other prospects, and I don't even think he has the floor of some of the other guys that we're talking about on this list. I think that the Orioles like him. I think that he impressed and he opened some eyes uh, in the Orioles front office. However, I don't see another team jumping on him. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are other teams that value him around baseball, but I think the Orioles are okay uh, with letting him go if if he is taken because he could always be sent back in the middle of the season and odds are he's not going to be a superb Major League Baseball player. Yeah, Dorian hit 22 home runs in 112 games at AA this year. Did also have 13 errors at third base, so if he comes up to the major league level, he is probably not a great great contributor defensively. If we're getting giving Adam Hall a 70-30 chance to get protected, personally, I'd probably give Patrick Dorian like 20% of that 30% that it is somebody other than Adam Hall. But I think Dorian of the remaining guys on the list has some of the better odds to get protected just because he has put up good numbers in the minors and maybe another uh, another team thinks that that could translate to the major league level. Now, another guy that the Orioles 
have elected not to protect in the last few Rule 5 drafts is Cody Sedlock. He was the former first-round pick in 2016, and he was not selected by another team in the Rule 5 draft in either 2019 or 2020. He has struggled with injuries throughout his career, but he is 26 years old. He's getting to the point where he should probably be at the majors soon, if not already. Cody Sedlock, I don't think, gets protected because the Orioles have already seen what the rest of the league thinks of him. And I think if he was going to get picked by another team, it probably would have been two years ago when he was first eligible. Yeah. If he had been left unprotected, didn't get taken and then came out in 2021 and dominated, I think that would be a different story because he would be changing what the league thought about him. But I think that he just wasn't quite good enough. A 503 ERA 10 strikeouts for nine is intriguing. Uh, but I don't think that he, that, that, with that is almost 1.5. I mean, that is pretty darn high uh, in 24 games between Bowie and Norfolk. Injuries are not really a concerning thing anymore. He's probably, he's, he's at least seems to have put that in the past after he dealt with thoracic outlet syndrome. Um, but I just don't know if he's intriguing enough for another team to take him. And again, I think it's worth the risk of potentially losing him uh, if Sedlak goes. But I, I agree. I, I think that he didn't, he wasn't good enough to prove teams wrong in 2021. Yeah, a small percent chance I would give to Cody Sedlock. Another bullpen arm that might get picked in the Rule 5 draft if the Orioles do not protect him is Ofelki Peralta. He was an international signing in 2013. He's just 24 years old, did have an ERA over five, but he had high strikeout numbers. So a bit of an interesting case there with Peralta. I don't think he gets protected because I don't think the ceiling is terribly high, but maybe another team looks at the strikeout numbers and thinks that that's good enough to gamble on. Yeah, I think you look at the fact that he is 24 years old, so he's a couple of years old, younger than Cody Sedlock. Uh, he had a five ERA, which is right around what Sedlock had, 10 strikeouts per nine, which is right around what Sedlock had as well. But the fact that he was a reliever much more than a starter I think that that hurts his case. I mean, a five ERA for a, a reliever in the minor leagues is especially not enticing for teams. I think for a starter, you look at that and maybe, you know, you can make some excuses there, but um, I don't think Ofelki Peralta gets, gets added. I could be wrong if there are enough things on tape and if the, the age is enticing for other teams, but I tend to put him on the outside looking in. Yeah, Dennis on Facebook asking, uh, what about the kid who just pitched in the AFL All-Star game? So glad you brought up Nick Vespi, because that's who we're going to talk about next. Another bullpen arm who is kind of in a similar boat as Peralta. The ERA is not fantastic, but the strikeout numbers are high. Jonathan Mayo saying, a lefty reliever with upper-level experience, that's a Rule 5 pick waiting to happen. I don't know if I necessarily agree because he had a 686 ERA in 16 games with AAA Norfolk, but even there where he struggled, the strikeout numbers were good again. He had struck out 25 batters in 19 and two-thirds innings. What are the odds that Nick Vespi gets protected after a strong showing in the Fall League? Yeah, I don't think it's likely. I just Arizona Fall League, like I think, can help players' cases, but I don't think it can help them enough. Like The sample size is just not big enough. It's like a month-long you know, season that they have. And um, it, it certainly maybe opened some eyes for the Orioles, but I don't think it opened eyes around the league per se. I don't think it did enough to erase that 686 ERA in 16 games. So uh, nice that the Orioles have him in the system and that he's showing promise, but I don't think he's worth protecting. Yeah, I don't think he gets protected either, 
but he is a lefty with good strikeout numbers. So maybe that gives him a case there. I think he is kind of last in the category of a small percent chance that they get protected. And the next few guys we're going to talk about, I think have little to no chance of getting protected. Maybe I would throw Caden Grenier in the very unlikely, but still a little bit of a chance category. Grenier is one of the better defenders in the Orioles system, and that is really his calling card in the middle infield. But the Orioles have a lot of middle infielders at this point, and a lot of them have a much higher offensive ceiling, and their defense is good enough to be passable at the major league level. I don't know if you can justify protecting Grenier when his defense is his best attribute, and the offense is just really not there. Yeah, he hit just 221 with nine homers and a 679 OPS uh, with double A Bowie this year. And he did get to triple A at the very end of the season. But I think that was more due to the fact that he was 25 years old and the double A season ended before the triple A season. So they could just bump him up there automatically. If And this is not to say for any of these guys that we're saying are not going to get protected. That's not to say we don't think they can be major leaguers. We just don't think. We just think the Orioles can get away with not adding them to their 40-man roster, which is honestly a good thing in some ways because you're saying that they can keep them in the organization without having to use up one of their valuable roster spots. So I think Grenier fits in that same category as well. And to me, he's below Patrick Dorian and and Adam Hall pretty clearly, who are both better uh, infield prospects right now. So I think that he is he's unlikely to get added. Yeah, Caden Grenier has a pretty high floor. I think there's a chance he could be a suitable major leaguer if you just need somebody to come in and play decent defense for you somewhere in the infield. But the ceiling is pretty low with Grenier because of those offensive numbers. So I don't think it is worth, at this point, using a 40-man roster spot on him. And if another team wants to take a chance on Grenier... The ceiling's not that high. I don't think the Orioles will be all that disappointed with losing him. Another guy whose ceiling is not terribly high is Blaine Knight. He was a third-round pick out of Arkansas back in 2018. The numbers have not been fantastic for Knight. He had a 540 ERA across three levels of the minors this year. The ERA in single A was good. He starts with a 241 ERA in single A. Then that jumps up to a 504 ERA in double A. And then finally to an 849 ERA in triple A. I don't think another team is going to take a chance on somebody with an ERA that has looked that bad at the higher levels of the minors. Yeah, and while he is a year younger than Sedlock, I think he and Sedlock are in a similar category where they were highly drafted by the Dan Duquette era front office. Um, and they're both righties and are both, you know, at one point reviewed as, as top prospects in the Oriole system. Those days have passed. And I think when teams look at swings to take on pitchers in the Rule 5 draft, Strikeout numbers are a big thing. Strikeout numbers are huge, and Blaine Knight had just 7.4 Ks per nine uh, in addition to that 540 ERA. So maybe some teams, you know, there are always things that we don't see, that we're not privy to, analytics behind the scenes and data that, you know, we don't see that, that makes these guys enticing. Similar to, look, the Orioles took Max Roller last year, somebody who was not even on our radar uh, in the Rule 5 draft. Neither was Tyler Wells. Uh, the Rule 5 draft never goes how just about anybody thinks it's going to go. So maybe there are some things that are able to convince teams about Blaine Knight, but I I think he is worth the risk of leaving him out uh, in addition to Cody Sedlock. I think they're both in a very similar category here. 
yeah, I don't think the ceilings are high enough for either of those guys to be worthy of a spot, especially when the spots are so tightly contested with these, uh, we're guessing, six roster spots that the Orioles are going to have available before the Rule 5 draft. And then two more guys who are relievers that have not flashed too awful much, Ryan Conroy and Felix Bautista. I think it is very unlikely that the Orioles protect two guys who are exclusively relievers throughout the minors, just because the ceiling is not all that high with either one. Yeah, I think Conroy um, is the less likely of these two to get protected. Uh, he was a 2018 eighth rounder out of Elon, 4.86 ERA. Uh, he pitched in three different levels this past year in 63 innings between Delmarva, Aberdeen, and Bowie. And a 4.86 ERA for a reliever, I just don't think is quite good enough um, to get protected. Felix Bautista, and I will give Steve Molesky a lot of credit here because he brought up some interesting points on com about the fact that Bautista might be an under-the-radar guy. If he gets less exposed to the Rule 5 draft, there might be some teams that can convince themselves to take him. He was a 2012 signing out of the Dominican Republic by the Marlins. He's been exclusively a reliever since 2018. Uh, 46 and two-thirds innings between Aberdeen, Bowie, and Norfolk this year. A 1-5-4 ERA and 15 strikeouts per nine. Now, he did have almost six walks per nine, which is a little ridiculous. But 15 strikeouts per nine, that's Grayson Rodriguez level. And I know it's a reliever, so it's very different. But his stuff is outstanding. A, a, a fastball that can hit 100, maybe even 101 miles an hour. He's got a slider and a changeup, so he's a three-pitch pitcher. And of the Orioles' farm pitchers who threw 40 or more innings this year, he ranked first in ERA and strikeout rate in the best farm system in baseball. So Bautista's 26, exclusively a reliever, but those numbers are intriguing. And I think if he does get left exposed, I think there's a good chance that he gets taken. And just because... I'm not saying there's a good chance he stays with the team that that ends up taking him, but those numbers are just like too intriguing to pass up, I think, for a lot of teams. Yeah, I mean, the stuff is really good. You mentioned the fastball that can hit 101. The slider that you mentioned is in the low 90s. If a team can figure out how to get his commands under control, I mean, the walk numbers are ridiculous. You can't have almost six walks per nine and be an effective reliever at the major league level. But if somebody has enough faith in the stuff, I think Batista falls into the category of unlikely to be protected by the Orioles. But if he's not, I think another team probably takes him because the stuff has such high upside. Definitely. Definitely higher. And vastly different when you talk about like a Blaine Knight. Low strikeout numbers, high ERA, and uh, you know around the same age. It's just going to be intriguing to see what teams value. Uh, going into this Rule 5 draft. And uh, assuming that, by the way, the Rule 5 draft happens, considering it is after December 1st, supposed to be at the end of winter meetings, second week of December, and the collective bargaining agreement is supposed supposed to expire on midnight, December 1st. So do they put the Rule 5 draft on hold if we go into a work stoppage? Do they do it in March? Do they, uh, you know, what what is it going to look like? Do they change the rules of it? So... I think that we are assuming that it's just going to be a normal Rule 5 draft. Um, And I think that we're also trying to determine who gets taken based on what we've seen, or who gets protected based on what we've seen Michael Ives do in the past. And 2020 was a much easier group to predict. I think, uh, I'm going to toot our own horn here. I think we were the only group that, like, 
accurately predicted the six guys who did get protected because we those guys to us made the most sense. They were all top 30 prospects except for Isaac Matson. I think, who, who did they take last year, Brendan? Help me remember here. They took Zach Lowther, Mike Bauman, Alexander Wells, Isaac Matson. Uh, who am I forgetting here? Was it Diaz and Bannon last year? Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah, Usniel Diaz and Ryland Bannon. So uh, that that made was much easier to parse out because we didn't have the season in 2020. So like it was just us looking at the the um, top 30 prospect list and then also including Isaac Matson because he was traded recently. So this is just much harder. This is going to be much harder to predict. So I want to hear your final prediction for what the Orioles do here. Do you think they make any more roster changes before they add guys? I don't think they make a maybe. I think there's a possibility that they, I don't know, I think they DFA somebody at some point because they need to add catchers too. I mean, we're talking about this 40-man roster. The Orioles need to protect probably six of these guys, we're guessing. Michael Elias will probably select two players in the Rule 5 draft. And unless he selects a catcher with one of those picks, which I guess is a possibility, the Orioles currently have zero catchers on the 40-man roster. So if all things stay the same, uh, John Means will be throwing to nobody on opening day. So the <laughs> Orioles will need to make room for two catchers, maybe even three on the 40-man roster. And the same three guys that we have been kind of bullying for the last two podcasts, DJ Stewart, Brooks Krisky, and Joey Crable, we are assuming they will probably not make the roster crunch come opening day. They will probably not be on this 40-man roster. The question is, do any of those guys get DFA'd before Friday's deadline? I don't think they do. So my final prediction is going to be the six guys that we discussed. D.L. Hall, Kyle Bradish, Kevin Smith, Taryn Vavra are pretty much absolute locks. And then the final two spots that are more or less up in the air, I'm going to go with Robert Newstrom and Adam Hall, just because he's the 15th ranked prospect. He's too good to lose. I think you're discounting the possibility that the Orioles go with no catchers until Adley Rutschman comes up. and they Everyone's going to be so John. confused. It's a great strategy. Throw every team and off just, balance. I mean, just let the umpire, you know, just fire it into the umpire's lower stomach all game long. Yeah. I mean, at some point, you know, he's just going to want the game to end and he's going to start calling strikes. Right. So, you know, a, a, he's just going to be in so much pain. So I think that's a potential option if they want to go with no catchers and then they call up Adley Rutschman. I agree. Uh, no, but I think that, I think the Orioles will want to get to 38. I do think that they want to get to 38 by Friday, and then I think they take two guys in the Rule 5 draft based on what we've seen from Michael Elias. They get to 40, and then when they have a catcher that they want to sign, or they have a pitcher that they want to sign, they just, you know, drop the whoever is 39th or 40th on their 40-man roster, and they just deal with it then. But I think they want to get to a, a 40 and load this roster up with as many guys as possible before they sign free agents. Yeah, but. I'm going to differ from you in in terms of my predictions. However, ooh, uh, I not not that much. I do think that the Orioles add Theo Hall, Kyle Bradish, Kevin Smith, Karen Father, Robert Newstrom. Those five guys. I think they add Adam Hall. I think, even though I think it's a close call, that's six. And I think they add Felix Bautista. And I think that they they uh, and I think the way that they do that is they still leave themselves an option to take two five two guys in the Rule Five draft by DFAing Joey Crable. That is my prediction. I think if they really want to get frisky, they could DFA uh, DJ Stewart and add 
a an Alfie Peralta uh, or a Cody Stedlock or a Blaine Knight. I think that the options are all across the board, and I don't think either one of us is going to accurately predict what Michael Elias is going to do. But that's my final prediction. They drop Joey Crable. They add seven guys in the World Five draft. Yeah, before and, the World Five draft. Excuse me. Well, we often get things wrong and and often do not know what Michael Elias is going to do, and we will see if Paul and I are going to get bullied by all of Orioles Twitter for predicting that Adam Hall will be protected, as a lot of Orioles Twitter and writers have assumed that he is not going to get protected. But as the deadline approaches on Friday, make sure you're keeping up with MadisonSports.com. Rock Cabaco and Steve Molesky will have you covered with all things 40-man roster for the Baltimore Orioles. Make sure you're following along with the podcast on all of your favorite podcast platforms including Facebook and YouTube. You can catch it on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Music, I don't know, a bunch of podcast platforms. Wherever you get your platforms and your podcasts, you can find the Mass in All Access podcast. Paul, thank you so much for joining us from Ireland. Do you have any more plans to continue to spread the Orioles gospel wherever you can? I mean, uh, look, put a, put a couple pints in me and I start talking Orioles, you know, regardless of, of what country I'm in. So I think, uh, you know, I, I just... I could have taken this full week off and decided I don't want to do anything work, but I thought this is this is my Super Bowl. The Rule Five Draft protections, not even the Rule Five Draft. This is what I spend all year thinking about. So I have yeah. to get my opinions on the record before the uh, you know the deadline approaches. So uh, you know I got some interesting plans here in Cork now that I've made the trip over from Dublin as I slip back into my Irish accent. And if you have any suggestions as to where I should go in Cork. Uh, and I'm going to spend one more night in, in Dublin before I fly back. Uh, please let me know. I've already seen the Guinness factory. I know a little touristy. Uh, and I've already, uh, you know, gotten to experience some uh, some nice things around the River Liffey in Dublin. So, uh, you know, if, you, if you've got some uh, some recommendations, please let me know. It's, it's a beautiful country. I, I really don't think I'm going to leave, Brendan. It's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, well, I think the podcast looks so much better with this graphic that we have instead of having to see your face. Yeah. So I, I think this is the way to go. If you have any Ireland suggestions, please tweet at Paul Mancano. I am at Brendan Morty. For Paul, I'm Brendan Mortensen. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.